I was thinking this week how, I think it's been about three, maybe four weeks ago now, we mourned and in a way kind of celebrated um, the death of our nation's most popular and I think probably one of the most effective uh, evangelists. And without me even saying his name, most of you probably in here know who I'm talking about, the famous Reverend Billy Graham. I think just about everybody in this room, probably everybody except maybe some of the younger kids, uh, have heard of Billy Graham. But a name that maybe you aren't familiar with is the name Charles Templeton. And it's sad, I guess, that we don't know Charles Templeton as well as Billy Graham. And what I mean by that is that uh, Charles and, and Billy, they had very similar talents. Some people thought that, that Charles Templeton might even be a little bit more talented than Billy Graham, at least early on in his career. And Charles Templeton, he became a Christian in 1936. Eventually, he co-founded Youth for Christ. In the 1940s, Youth for Christ hired a young preacher by the name of Billy Graham. He became their full-time evangelist. And so these two men, Charles Templeton, Billy Graham, they traveled together. They roomed together. They became very good friends. But why don't we hear the name Charles Templeton now? Well, the fact is, the sad fact is, the two men took very different paths in life. Unfortunately, not too long after this happened, about by the 1950s, uh, Charles Templeton was no longer a believer. He became an agnostic. He wasn't sure that there was a a God anymore. And, And basically, there's a lot of things that led up to that, but what it really boiled down to was he had some doubts that crept into his mind. And he just could not seem to overcome those doubts. And he had a lot of doubts and he had a lot of questions. But there's one question that stood out from all the others. And that question is, why do bad things happen? If God is good, then how can bad things happen? How can he let things like that go on if God is good? There was an interview uh, in a book called The Case for Faith. It's written by a man named Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel is actually a former atheist who became a Christian. He set out to disprove Christianity and ended up becoming a Christian in the process. And Lee Strobel, he writes about Charles Templeton. He did an interview with him. He passed away in the early uh, 2000s, Charles Templeton did. But he did an interview shortly before he passed away. And uh, he was asking him kind of what led up to his doubts. And he said, you know, he couldn't point to any one thing, but he did remember this. There was a magazine cover that he saw, and I think it was Time magazine. And at that time, there was a horrible drought going on. I think it was somewhere in Africa. And he said, on the cover, there was a picture of a woman holding her child that had died. And the child had died because of a lack of water. And the woman's looking up into heaven almost as if to ask, you know, why? Why, God? And he said, I couldn't get over that. All she needed was water. And God couldn't give her water? And he said, and then you think about the flood and how God wiped millions of people off the face of the earth with water. And he couldn't rationalize that. He couldn't understand that. He couldn't explain that. And that was one of the reasons why he left the faith. That question of why bad things happen, that is a very inconvenient question for all believers, isn't it? But it's a little more than just an inconvenience for some of us, um, all of us, at some point in our lives, evil will touch us in a very personal way. We will get sick. We'll experience some sort of tragedy. We see some sort of natural disaster, and I think a lot of us, our first inclination is to ask the question, why? Why did that have to happen? It's a tough question. You know, the disciples, we're going to be in John chapter 9, if you want to start turning there, if you would. Uh, John chapter 9, 
The disciples had the same question. Um, I don't know that they're quite brave enough to ask it plainly, but I think they asked that same question here. And the truth I want you to see in this passage, the truth I think you will see from this passage is this, that the sickness, now when I talk about sickness, I'm talking about any kind of evil that touches your life. The sickness is always sin. The remedy is always Jesus. The sickness is always sin. No matter what you go through, no matter what bad happens in your life, it is always the result of sin. I'm not saying it's the result of your sin. I'm just saying it is the result of sin. But Jesus is always the remedy. John chapter 9, this is a long passage, and believe it or not, we're going to cover the whole thing today, but we're not going to read it all at once to give you a break and to give me a break. So we're going to break it up into uh, little sections here. And the first one that we're going to read is verses 1 through 7. So if you've got a Bible or you're, if you're reading on your phone or whatever, um, by the way, I've got a little bit shorter sermon today, so I've got to burn some time. You know, I don't, can't let you guys get out of here too early. So for those of you who are techie, if you are not familiar with, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, now this doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's good for everybody to have if you are techie, I would really recommend um, Version. If you go to your app store, type in Version. It is a really good Bible app. It has like t- hundreds, thousands of devotions, uh, reading plans. Also, you know, when you click, when you go in here and you click on the Bible, you can look up where we're at and you can kind of follow along. You can make notes, you can highlight. Just something I'd really recommend. Um, For those of you who can't seem to remember your Bible on Sunday morning, I understand that. At least you have your cell phone and you can follow along. Because we're going to be coming back to a lot of the stuff we're reading here. Okay? I'll move on now. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It's talking about Jesus. This is what it says. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, works the work, we must work the works of God who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes ew, with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So this story starts with a man who is sick. He doesn't have a cold or anything like that, but this kind of sickness is something that he was born with. He was born blind. Now, this is pretty common in third world countries. It's pretty common in places that don't have general, you know, just good sanitation. This is pretty common that people are born blind. I don't know about you, but I remember distinctly both of my babies being born. Two very different circumstances, wasn't it? Uh, Two very different uh, kinds of things. But anyways, I can distinctly remember both my babies being born. And you want to know what I did first? I counted all their fingers and toes. I made sure that everything was good. Now, Maddie, she was a little bit scary because she was born early. And and I can still remember her kind of like gasping for air because her lungs weren't totally developed. I'll never forget that sound. Um, Other than that, though, our babies were perfectly healthy, nothing wrong. And that's always a relief to us as parents, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes babies are born with defects, and it doesn't make their parents love them any less, but it's still, it's heartbreaking, isn't it, to know that our baby is born with something that, man, we wish they didn't have. Well, this man had been born blind. And the question the disciples ask is this, who sinned? Isn't that kind of an interesting question? The disciples see this man who is blind, and their minds automatically go to the belief, the belief that he must have done something really bad. 
That was pretty common in the ancient world. They believed that if you did something bad, something bad would happen to you. And if something like this affected you from birth, well, it must have been the result of your sin or the sin of your parents. We kind of have similar beliefs like that. I guess in modern culture, you hear people talk about karma all the time, which, by the way, is not a Christian belief. And I hear Christians talk about karma all the time. Well, that's karma. I understand. I mean, the Bible would say this way, that you reap what you sow. But also, as Christians, we don't believe in karma because we believe in a God of grace and God of mercy. We believe in a God who gives us what we don't deserve and a God who doesn't give us what we do deserve. You know what I'm saying? So we don't believe in karma. Now, we do believe that we plant seeds, and we need to be careful about the seeds that we plant. And sometimes there's consequences for what we do, but we do not believe in karma. We believe in a God of grace and mercy. But what question, when the disciples ask this question, who sinned? What are they really asking? Why'd they ask that question? What are they really saying? Their question stems from this belief that bad things happen to people who deserve it. And the reason why they have that belief is because the alternative to that is terrifying, isn't it? We can understand if something bad happens to somebody who did something bad, right? We're okay with that. But we're not okay with bad things happening to somebody who, in our mind, we think doesn't deserve it. So that's why they have that belief is because they couldn't understand why God would let bad things happen to somebody who, in their mind, didn't deserve it. So really, what are the disciples asking? The same question that we ask. Why? Why does God, who is good, allow bad things to happen? And it's really easy for us to believe that bad things just happen to people who do bad things. But then what about when bad things begin to happen to us? then all of a sudden it's not so easy to believe and we start looking for answers elsewhere. Well, that can't be right. I think about the story of Job. You remember that story? It's a whole book dedicated to it and a good part of the book is uh, dedicated to Job's so-called friends coming to comfort him. Job, he was afflicted directly by Satan. God did allow that to happen. Because Satan said, there's no, there's no one righteous. And, and, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, I bet I can trip him up. And so God permitted him to, to uh, touch Job's life. Took away his health. Took away most of his family. Took away his wealth. He was a wealthy man. Later on, he restored it. But it was a difficult time for Job to go through. And as Job is going through all these things, his friends keep coming up to him saying, Job, you better fess up. Job, you, you messed up bad, and you better come clean because God is coming after you. And Job kept saying, no, I, I don't know why this is happening to me. But that was their assumption, too. You must have done something really bad. I, I hear so-called Christians nowadays, people in churches, where something bad happens to them. And people in their church say, well, you better get right with God. You must have done something really. You better stop making God mad. I hear that to this day. Church is teaching that. That is just dead wrong. That is not what the Bible says. So the question is, what do we conclude when bad things happen to us? What do we conclude when we lose a baby? What do we conclude when we are diagnosed with cancer? What do we conclude when we are in an accident or someone we love is in an accident or when we're abused or when our baby is born with a condition? What are we left to conclude when bad things happen? Sometimes when bad things happen, we're left with a lot of misconceptions. Sometimes we think, well, we're being punished by God. Maybe we became a Christian later in life and we had done some terrible things and we think, well, God is punishing me because of the former life I lived. 
Or maybe you did something wrong and you have regrets, but still you did it. And, and so you think, well, well, God is punishing me. Or maybe you're left with something even worse. Maybe you just, like Charles Templeton, think, well, there can't be a God. And if there is a God, he surely can't be good. Maybe those are the misconceptions that you're left with. So I think the question is, can we as believers today understand why bad things happen? I don't think we can understand it in a way that is comfortable for us or easy, but I think we can. And I think to really understand where evil comes from, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, to the garden, the Genesis, the book of Genesis. It means beginning. And if you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that the way things are in the world today are not the way that God created them to be, right? When we read the creation account, what do we read over and over again? God created this, and it was good. And then he created this, and it was good. And then he made this, and it was good, and everything was good. God didn't make anything bad. So we have to understand that the way things are today are not the way that God designed them to be. Now, I know that doesn't answer the question, but we're going to get to that. But you see, everything changed when the serpent tricked Adam and Eve to disobeying God. At that moment, everything changes. Their relationship with God was changed. They realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid from God. They felt shame for the first time. They were kicked out of the garden. Adam had to work by the sweat of his brow. Eve had pain during childbirth. There was enmity, hatred, strife between the, the offspring of man and the offspring of Satan. Now, that's a really important thing. There was enmity and strife between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of man. You know what that's called today? Spiritual warfare. It means there are two sides fighting. There is good and there is evil, and we are tugged by both. That is why evil happens in the world today. Satan had a choice. Now, a lot of times we think of the Garden of Eden, and really up until this year, I always said, well, that's the moment when evil entered their world. That's not true. Evil existed before Adam and Eve chose to disobey, because before they chose to disobey, Satan disobeyed God. He rebelled against God. And the reason why that happens, what we're kind of left with is, well, did God create evil then? Did God make evil if he made everything? God didn't create evil. God left the opportunity for evil to happen. We say, well, why would a loving God do this? Why would God even allow the possibility of evil? Well, imagine a relationship. Imagine you're in a relationship with somebody, and they do all the right things. They tell you all the right things. They do all the right things. They, they, everything is perfect about them. But the only reason why they do that is because they have to. Imagine that kind of relationship. They do all the right things, but it's only because they don't have a choice. Is that really a relationship? God didn't do that. God didn't make us like robots. He gave us a choice to do the right thing and to follow him or not. So the most loving thing that God ever did for us was to give us a choice. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it began this spiritual battle between Satan and between humanity. And that battle is very much at the forefront of this story. This man was blind, and he was blind because of sin. Not because of his sin, specifically. Not because of his parents' sin. He was blind because sin entered the world. That's how evil, that's how sickness entered the world, was when we chose to do things our own way. That's why this man was born blind. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? 
He doesn't talk about that. I mean, Jesus, he could have taken this opportunity to explain the problem of evil and how evil entered the world, but instead, what does Jesus say? This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did God cause this man to be blind? I don't think so. But he used it to display the works of God. What's interesting about this story is this blind man, he doesn't approach Jesus, which is different, isn't it? Most of the stories that we read in the Bible where people are being healed, they seek after Jesus. I think of the woman who's going through the crowd, and she reaches out and touches Jesus, and Jesus says, who touched me? You know, when people would come to Jesus, hey, come heal my daughter, or come heal my son, or come do this. But this time, this blind man doesn't even ask Jesus. Jesus just walks up to him, spits in the dirt, rubs dirt in his eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Kind of an interesting way to heal somebody, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I wear contacts. And if you wear contacts, you know what it's like when you get just like a piece of dirt in your contact. Like the first thing you do is like, I got to get this thing out. You know, I got to get this dirt out of my eyes. I got to wash my contacts off. We want to get the dirt out of our eyes, right? Even if you don't wear contacts, you know what it's like to get dust and dirt in your eyes. What does Jesus do? This guy's got an issue with his eyes. He decides to rub dirt on it and go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, back to the question, did God cause this man to be blind? And that's really what the disciples are asking, right? What the disciples are really asking when they say, who sinned to make this man blind? He's not really asking that. They're not really asking that question. What they want to know is why did God let this happen to this man? Surely there must have been a good reason for it. So the question is, does God cause bad things to happen? I heard a quote. I don't think I'll ever forget it. I heard it last week. We were at a marriage conference. Awesome conference. It was, a, it was awesome. one of the best things we've ever done. But um, one of the phrases that I heard that really stuck with me was this. God won't protect you from what he will perfect you through. God won't protect you from what he will perfect you through. Whenever we go through sickness, trials, any kind of evil, we need to understand that evil comes from the evil one. Evil comes from the devil. You can trace it back to the garden. Every single time, God created the world to be good. Satan perverted it. But so many times, we're so, quick, we're so quick to blame God in times of trouble. God, how could you let this happen? But you see, Jesus is the remedy. It's not God's fault. But even though he didn't cause it, he still brings healing from it. You see, the sickness is always sin. The remedy is always Jesus. But the sickness that Jesus came to heal, it goes way deeper than just this physical blindness. There's a spiritual blindness that Jesus addresses in this story, not just a physical one. And it manifests itself in a couple ways in the story. So let's go on to the next section here. John chapter 9, verses 8 through 23. I promise I won't spend as much time on the next sections as I did the first one. John chapter 9, verses 8 through 23. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Then they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought To the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. 
He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, pay attention to this, he's a prophet. Interesting, isn't it? His faith hadn't come to completion yet. I want to enter, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. We're going to pick back up. But I mean, that's what we're talking about with this series, The Carpenter's Son, that people had a lot of different ideas about Jesus. That, that phrase comes from Matthew where Jesus was teaching in his hometown. And people were amazed at what he had to say. And all of a sudden they said, but isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the, the son of Mary? And they rejected him. They couldn't believe that he was any more than a man. Some people believed he was a man. Some people today believe Jesus didn't even exist as a man. Some people believed he was a prophet like this man. Other people believed he was the Messiah. Let's continue on to verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put outside the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The Pharisees are mad. The real reason they're mad is because this guy, Jesus, is stealing their thunder. The reason why they're mad about this particular incident is because Jesus has broken the law. Now, when we talk about the law... We are talking about the Old Testament law. Those are God-given laws, laws that you can read about for yourself in the book of Deuteronomy. Tons of laws that God gave to the people. But Jesus didn't break those laws. In their mind, he did. But what they're concerned with was they began to make laws about those laws. It said to, to rest on the Sabbath. So they started making all these definitions of what it meant to work and what it meant to rest. And you can only walk this far and you could do this and you, could, you couldn't do that. They made their own rules. Jesus, in their mind, had broken not the law, but one of their laws. That's what they were upset with. And it's here we begin to see the real problem that goes deeper than just physical sickness. It's a, it's a spiritual blindness, a spiritual sickness. We see it in, in the disciples here. Did you notice that? Here they come upon this blind man. He's been blind from birth. He's a beggar. I mean, there's nothing he did to to deserve that. But we don't sense that there's any compassion from the disciples. There's no desire to help. They just wanted to know what awful thing he had done to deserve it. But I I don't think we see any compassion here in the disciples. I could be wrong. What about the crowd? It says many of them didn't believe. I mean, they'd seen this man day after day. They knew it was him, but they refused to believe it. Then the Pharisees, rather than rejoicing because this guy had received his sight, they were more upset that someone had broken their silly rules. Even his parents distanced themselves from him. And so they send the Pharisees back to the man to question him instead of them. And the Pharisees, again, they're more upset about the rules being broken. John chapter 9, verse 24 through 34 The next section, this is what it says. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. In other words, swear on the Bible. I mean, that's kind of like take an oath. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, 
What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) That's funny. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? They cast him out. This man... uh, even though he doesn't know much about Jesus, he uh, shares some truth with these guys. He, he's just met Jesus. Jesus doesn't explain anything spiritually to him. He just heals him and walks away, and the man can see. That's it. It's a, it's a physical healing. That's all that takes place at first. The Pharisees accuse this man of being a sinner. I mean, these are the most educated men in society, and... They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. And this man in his practical wisdom, he says, you you guys want to talk so much about this guy, you must want to follow him. And then he says, in his practical wisdom, he kind of understands more about Jesus than these guys who should know about Jesus. He says, it's kind of strange that you don't know about this Jesus guy. Because I don't know about you, I've never heard of anybody being healed from blindness, but I have been. So it's strange to me that you guys who know all about the Bible... Don't know about this guy who has the power to heal physical blindness. And they didn't like that. So what happens? It says that they threw him out of the synagogue. This man was just healed from blindness. You would think that his problems were over, right? You ever been in this situation? Where you thought, man, if I could just lose this many pounds, if I could just make this much money, if my kids could just get along, If my job, if this boss would quit, if you ever thought, man, if this could just happen, then my life would be perfect. You ever thought that? You've thought that. I know you have. You probably know better by now. But at some point in your life, you thought, man, if this could just happen, my life would be perfect. I can guarantee you this man for years thought, man, if I could only see, if I could just see, my life would be perfect. That wasn't the case, was it? He was physically healed, but his life wasn't perfect, right? I mean, how many times have we begged with God to heal us or to heal somebody else physically, to take away our sickness and to take away our our pain, to take, you know, to protect our little ones, to save our marriage? And we think, man, if that would just happen, then everything would be great. But you need to understand, Jesus has the power to heal, but you need to understand if he only heals you physically, it's still not going to be enough. Jesus came to bring spiritual healing. Life wasn't great for this man. Even though at one point he thought it probably would be if he could just see. But instead what happens? He makes the Pharisees so mad, they throw him out of the synagogue. Now we might think, well, big deal. He got tossed out of that church. Just go to the next one down the block. That's not what happens. That wasn't what it was like. In this society, if you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were kicked out of culture. Your family would not associate with you because you were unclean. They could not associate with you because if they associated with you who was unclean, then they would become unclean, and they couldn't go to the synagogue, and they would be outcast. So you need to understand when this man was thrown out of the synagogue, he was thrown out of culture. 
away from everybody he knew. Even his family would have rejected him. So in a lot of ways, he was worse off than he was before. Let's finish the chapter out. John chapter 9, 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, that those who do not see and those who see may become blind. Excuse me, those who do not, do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you have had no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. You see, Jesus, he came to heal, and sometimes we get really enamored with physical healing. We ask a lot for it, and we are excited when we see physical healing take place. Physical sickness is only a consequence of sin. What I'm saying is that that sickness and pain and trouble is just a symptom of the disease. The real disease is sin. And Jesus came to treat not just the symptoms. He came to treat the sin, the disease itself. He came to heal. And so he seeks out this former blind man, and he can see, but his world is darker than ever. But then Jesus opens up his eyes spiritually. He says, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've heard about. And this man bows down and worshiped him. Jesus came to heal, but his message is that you can only heal people when they can see that they're sick. And that was the problem. That was the spiritual blindness that I'm talking about, the spiritual blindness of unbelief, the spiritual blindness of pride. The Pharisees, they thought, we don't need you. We're good. That's spiritual blindness. See, sometimes when we experience sickness or hardship, our first instinct is to blame God. We need to understand that evil doesn't come from God. If you're going through a bad situation, if you're sick, if you're having trouble financially, if you're, whatever it is, that doesn't come from God. That comes from the devil. He's not the sickness, he's the remedy. God can heal, but he, always, he doesn't always do that. He won't always protect you from what he will perfect you through. So my encouragement for you, if you are going through something that is painful, if you have evil that is touching you in a very personal way, don't waste your pain. Don't waste it. Don't let it slip by. Don't spend your time, waste your time blaming God because God didn't cause it, but God can use it. He can use it to show the world what it really means to believe, what it really means to be a faithful believer. I mean, let's be honest here. I don't mean to sound morbid, and I don't want to leave on a bad note. But let's say we're really sick, something that can take our life, and let's say God heals us. For example, Lazarus, he, rose, he had Lazarus rise from the dead, but guess what? Lazarus, Lazarus, he ended up dying anyways. So even if we are healed, let's be honest, we're just delaying the inevitable, right? None of us that are here are going to escape death unless the Lord comes back. And I don't, I don't need, mean to be morbid, but what I'm saying is I think we need to change our attitude towards death. Going back to Billy Graham, he had a pretty good attitude uh, towards death, didn't he? Wrote a book called Nearing Home, Towards the End of His Life. But one of my favorite things that he said, he said um, in a sermon years ago, he said, one day you will hear that Billy Graham has died. He said, don't believe it. I've only changed my address. 
And that's, that's true for us. That ought to be our attitude, I mean, right? We know that this place isn't our, isn't our final home, but man, sometimes we really act like it. So when I say that we're just kind of delaying the inevitable, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just saying there's something better that's to come. This is only the beginning. But in the meantime, we need to be careful not to be like these Pharisees and really even the disciples. It's so easy for us to ignore our spiritual blindness by judging the sickness of others. Saying, well, that happened to you because you did this. Or we focus on religion and rules instead of our, our need that we have, all of us, for Jesus. That we're all sick. That we all need him. But we also need to share what he's done in our lives. This is one of my favorite stories, and you want to know why? Because it's honest, it's genuine, unfiltered, and I love people like the man in the story. He doesn't know a lot about Jesus, other than Jesus healed him. And they keep interrogating him, more than once. But I love the part where they, they come up to him and they say, you know, who did this and how did he do this and by what power? He says, hey, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of your questions, but I do know this. This morning, I was blind, but now I can see. I think that's the kind of message we need to share with the world, don't we? And I, I see Christians around sharing every message but that. I mean, they're, they're, they've got their bullhorns out and they're talking about how everybody's a sinner and everybody's going to hell. And then you've got some people that are talking about the rules of, of, of uh, religion above anything else. And you've got some people that are arguing only apologetics and trying to prove that God exists. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, I'm not saying that sin isn't real or anything like that. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, shouldn't the main message that we preach be, this is what Jesus has done and this is what I've seen him do? Shouldn't that be the message? Because it's honest. Amen. Because it's honest. And I love the honesty of the man. I, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But I was blind. And now I see, man, I think we ought to have a story like that. Shouldn't we? But we also need to understand that following Jesus is not a call to the life of ease. John chapter 16 verse 33 says this. I have said these things to you that in me you might have peace. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You have so many preachers out there that are saying, oh, if you just believe, you'll never be sick and you can be healed. And I'm not saying that can't happen. But that's their main message. And they're missing the main message. The main message is no matter what happens in this world and in this life, Jesus has overcome the world. So no matter what you're going through, he says, take heart. Now, sometimes Jesus does heal physically. Sometimes he doesn't. But I do know this, that he always heals spiritually. You say, what does it mean to be healed spiritually? Well, I'm kind of using that phrase without really explaining it. I'm talking about what happens to this man. He knows the truth. That's what it means to be healed spiritually, that you know the truth. And the truth is that Jesus came to save us, to offer us eternal life. That's what it means to be spiritually healed, to know that truth. So that no matter what happens in this life, we know that we have a certain hope. I want to share one last thing with you. And uh, it's just, I can't help but, but do this because uh, I know that I think God orchestrated this. I get a devotion, a guy that I barely know, I met him at a conference, he sends me a devotion every morning, and I usually send it out to a bunch of guys I know, and I wanted to read this, it's called The Hope of Glory, it's really short, it says, every day people around the world, this just got sent to me at 6 o'clock this morning, just so you know, every day people around the world are offered false promises and false hope, quick talking salesmen pitch miracle cures on television, and optimistic consumers buy into the idea that there is an easy, quick fix solution to their problems. 
But the Apostle Paul, by contrast, did not make, make such cavalier statements, implying that the gospel would simply fix everything. In fact, he was forthright in saying that if we are to follow Christ and share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. If you place your trust in God and set your hope in the future, you can rejoice today. What you suffer now is nothing compared to the glory of heaven. Your present body will be replaced with a new and perfect body. When you were saved, God adopted you into his family. With this adoption comes a wonderful inheritance. You're promised not only a new physical body, but also full redemption so that you will be like Christ and will never sin again. Place your hope in God as you eagerly await your glorified body. Your present hardships will one day come to an end. If you are in Christ, the world will bring temporary pain and trouble until the Lord calls you home. Why are your present sufferings not worth comparing to future glory that is to come? Because in heaven, you will have a perfect resurrection body and will spend eternity with God. One last verse here, Romans 8, 18 through 19. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager for the, for the children of God to be revealed. So my point is this, Jesus, he came to offer healing. Sometimes he heals physically, sometimes he doesn't. He always heals spiritually. He heals us with the knowledge that he has come to save us. And that one day we won't have all this garbage here on earth. But we'll be in a place that's perfect. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. The words are, are weak, Lord, and they sound empty. And I almost hate even saying them because there's just nothing we can say to express the weight of that, Lord, of what you've done for us. Lord, we know that you have blessed us with your word, that you've given us truth and that you've given us the answers. And most importantly, Lord, you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we know that sometimes in this life we experience trouble. And we know that when we experience trouble and we are far from you, that we are utterly hopeless, Lord. But when we follow you, when we put our hope and trust in you, the trouble may not stop, but we know that it's temporary. And I pray that every single person in this room connects with that truth, that if we believe in you and we put our hope and trust in you, then any present suffering that we're going through, it's temporary. It doesn't make it any less painful. It doesn't make it any easier. But it gives us the, the strength to endure because we know in the end it's worth it. I pray all of us know that hope. It's your name I pray. Amen. We come to our time of invitation. That's when we invite you to take some sort of action, whether it's something, uh, you know, very specific or just something in your heart or mind. But what I realize about the story is that Jesus came to this man in the time of desperation. And in a short time, he went from not knowing Jesus to bowing down and worshiping. And what I want you to see is that there's a progression. Just like the woman at the well that we talked about, he says, he calls him a Jewish man, and then he says, sir, and then she finally ends up calling him the Messiah. We see that same progression here. The man calls him sir, and then finally he calls him a prophet, and then he calls him Messiah. It started with desperation. He had a desperate need for Jesus, and he didn't even know he needed it. But then he obeyed him. Jesus said, go to this pool, and he obeyed. He believed, and then finally he worshiped. And I think that the progression should be the same for us, that if you are feeling desperate today, you need to put your hope in Jesus Christ. And that needs to turn into obedience. That needs to turn into belief, and it needs to be turned into worship. But I want you to understand this. The sickness is always sin. Whatever you're going through, it always comes back to sin. Maybe not your specific sin, but our sin, humanity. 
The remedy is always Jesus. One of the things I want to invite you to do, we've been doing this the last few weeks, and I think we're going to keep doing it. Uh, we've got elders, elders that you guys have, have picked to lead this church, good godly men. They're trying to do their best to, to lead the church. And I know they care about you. They definitely care about the relationship with God. And uh, we want to be here for you guys uh, and, and know that, that we care and most importantly that Jesus cares. And so they're going to make their way to the back of the room. And I just, I know some of you are, you're feeling sick. And it might be like an actual sickness. It might just be uh, just a frustration over things. Maybe you're, you're in a bad spot with your marriage or with your kids or I don't know what it is or your job. But if you've got something that's just heavy on your heart and you just want to pray with somebody about it or maybe you're concerned with someone else, these guys are going to be in the back of the room. They'd be more than happy to pray with you during our invitation time. Maybe today you were in a desperate place and you need to come to Jesus just like this man here. I, I want you to know that nothing's stopping you except you. And so if that's something you need to do today, you can talk to any of these guys about it. You can come down front here. I'll meet you down here. Uh, or we can talk after service. But if you were in a place of desperation and you're trying to do things on your own and you know it's not working out, maybe it's time to turn to him. And we can talk about what that means. If you've got something on your heart like that today, um, talk to one of these guys. Talk to me about it. Let's stand together and sing this song.